Hey there, this is Brian. I'm the host of the Engaging Missions show. If you've found this show for the first time, I did want to take a second to let you know that this show is not currently in production. You're certainly welcome to check out all of the archives, but we don't have new episodes coming out at the moment. However, I did want to take a second to highlight one of the sponsors that sponsored the show a while ago. They're not currently sponsoring the show, but if you're looking for a place to invest in the kingdom, I'd recommend checking out Mega Voice Audio Bibles. You can find them at megavoice.com, or you'll find a link in the show notes, and I would encourage you to just check that out and see if maybe that's a fit for your giving. There's no compensation here or anything like that. I just wanted to highlight them. And with that, I'll get you back into the regular program. Hi, this is Jenny Beth Gardner with the Transformational Education Network called 10.3, and you're listening to the Engaging Missions Radio Show. Welcome to the Engaging Missions Show, where we are bringing missions home. Here's your host, Brian Ensminger. Hi. I wanted to mention before we get into today's episode that this is going to be a special edition of the Engaging Missions Show. Normally, I have interviews with missionaries, ministry leaders, and church planters, but with everybody traveling over the holidays, I wanted to take a quick break from that, make sure that when I have people on that they're getting the best possible exposure that I can because they're taking time out of their schedule. So instead, I have for you something that I think is kind of special. It's a couple of things that I've shared at our church. I thought I'd put them in here because normally I have somebody else on the show and you might not have a a good opportunity to get to know me. So this might be some time to learn a little bit more about my story and kind of what's going into this. Hope you enjoy it. And if you want a regular episode, check back after January 1st, 2016. Good evening. Uh, I don't remember exactly what the year was. It was, uh, I'm guessing, 20 years ago. Uh, but I'd remember the first time I met Brian Ensminger. And uh, then there was kind of a, 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 a water under the bridge period. And uh, I very clearly remember uh, re-meeting Brian Ensminger. And Brian, on both occasions, struck me as a, an extraordinarily high-quality person, and uh, nothing in the intervening years has done anything to lessen that opinion. I'm excited to hear his story. Would you welcome Brian Ensminger? So you may have noticed something a bit out of character about me tonight. I'm going to put this... Yeah, cut my hair. That's what it was. Um, I'm wearing a jacket and a tie tonight, which for me is unstandard, right? And I've had a couple people ask me questions about why. You know, are you trying to set a new standard for Wednesday nights? The answer is no. I'm not trying to put on the trappings of authority or power or position. I'm trying to be an object lesson for God because my life is God's object lesson. And though I'm standing in the light, sometimes we have a tendency to try and cover ourselves with something. And, you know, one of the things that happens when we do that is, and this has been happening since the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they said, whoops, that ain't right. And they did two things. They covered themselves with leaves and stuff, and they went and hid from God. And then God, after having the encounter with them and transforming everything and kicking them out, or in that process, made them covering. He made them clothes. And the problem is that very often we want to wear our own. We want to choose our own. We want to look like something we're not. And... You know, that's often relevant in my own life. There are 
parts of my life that I tend to want to cover. And part of that is mixed, right? I think part of that is appropriate because just because I'm walking in the light, I'm, I'm in the light right now, that doesn't mean I'm supposed to be walking in the light totally uncovered, right? Because not only is that inappropriate for me, that's inappropriate for you, right? However, if I cover up the parts that God wants to share, then that becomes the problem. So my goal tonight is to uncover some of those things for you so that you can see what God has done in my life. Now, I'm not going to take off the jacket because then I would look like an angel on the live stream. And because there's this whole white balance thing, right? So we're not going to do that. And also, I don't want to be perceived as that person who comes in to demonstrate that they're condescending to something. Because that happens, right? You know, people come in and they establish authority by what they wear, and then they kind of strip down to more on your level so that you go, oh, they get me, but they're this person of power. I don't want to do that either. I want to identify with you in the sense that I want to cover myself too. But at the same time, in order to be obedient to God, I want to uncover. We're all like this. And one of the things I love about the leadership here is that we recognize that. There have been some times in some meetings where we've been discussing things. And the thing I love about the heart of the people I serve with is that their desire is to walk in total truth, in total submission to, to the Word of God and all that there is in that. And at the same time, to walk in total grace because those two and God are one. And so I walk with people who go, I have to call that sin, but I can't condemn a person because I know me and I know who God is and I know who God has been in my life. And I, I suspect that you know that as well. In my life, testimony is important to me. See, I go through on somewhat of a regular basis, my testimony with myself. In my life, I have set up Ebenezer. I'll, I'll read you a, a quick passage from 1 Samuel 7. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped me. I look back over my own life from time to time to encourage myself and go, I was this, and by God's grace I am this, and by God's grace I am becoming who I actually am. I would encourage you to do that yourself. As you think about your testimony, as you think about the things that God has done in your life, consider writing parts of them down. If we have time tonight, I'm going to share a portion of a letter that I wrote to myself about two years ago. I don't remember why I wrote it, but at the time I wrote a letter to the me who was 18, looking back over my life and going, okay, you're not going to believe the stuff you walk through, but you're also not going to believe the goodness of God. So my encouragement would be for you to consider doing that yourself from the standpoint that you may someday share it with people, but also from the standpoint that you need to remember what God has done because there will be those days when there are dark clouds and it seems like everything's closing in and it seems like everything is going wrong and it seems like you can't get anything right and you wonder if God hears and you go, but he heard me here. He may not deliver me the way he delivered me here, but he will and he has delivered me. So let's get into my story. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the preamble. Tonight, when I, as I share my story, I want to share with you some of the stages that I've gone through and also some of the ways that my experience and my relationship with God has changed and the reasons for my belief. So I was raised in church. When I was born, my dad was a pastor of a very small church out in western North Dakota. And through a series of events, frankly, I don't know all of them, but my dad ended up leaving that pastorate, not because of a sin issue, but because of something going on with the leadership in that church. I was probably three, maybe four at the time, so I don't remember much of that. But my dad left that point of ministry and went and got a job in the workforce because he didn't feel like God was calling him to pastor somewhere else. But he became almost immediately involved in church 
stuff. Over the years, he's taught Sunday school. He's been the Sunday school director. He's taught children's church. I mean, he's done just about everything, always looking for that opportunity to serve and always looking for that opportunity to minister the grace of God into people's lives. But my story doesn't, my heritage doesn't end there. See, my grandparents were also heavily involved in church on both sides and my great-grandparents, and theirs. And frankly, I don't know how far back it goes, except that I know that my heritage also goes back through all of the believers across all of the time, and that's the heritage we share. See, some of us, we come into Christ and we go, I can't look back and say my parents raised me to know this stuff. But we, also, but we can look back and go, people gave and lived their lives to pass this down to me because of their immense love for God. And I walk in that heritage, whether I may have ever met them or not. That is our heritage because we serve the same God and the same Holy Spirit lives in us and the same Bible is available to us. And God works in our lives in amazing ways. My experience, however, was being raised in the church. A lot of the time when I was younger, I'll just be frank with you, I believed because that's what I was taught. I was raised in the church and I was taught this is what you do, this is what you believe, and I don't at all want to disparage that. See, there's, I w some, for some of you, or maybe some people you know, I want to disabuse you of a notion. See, there's this notion in popular culture that you shouldn't tell your children what to believe. There's this notion that you should allow your children to decide what they should believe. But that's not scriptural. See, in, in Deuteronomy 11:19, talking about the law, it says, teach them, teach them the laws to your children, talking about them when you sit at home, and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, feel free to pour the truth and the grace of God into the lives of your children and your grandchildren. And if you meet somebody who professes to be a Christian, but also says, but I'm not going to tell my kids how to live. I'm not talking about manipulating or anything, I'm, but I'm, if they say, I'm not going to tell them what the truth is, point them to Deuteronomy and just let them know that's not scriptural. They can do with it what they want. The Holy Spirit can do with them what he wants but we need to be aware of that when i was about five or six time kind of gets muddy when you get old um my my family went to a crusade it was a lundstrom crusade it's kind of like a small version of billy graham up in the upper midwest and i don't remember what they taught on i don't remember the music what i do remember is they they talked about the fact that i could know that when I died, I would not go to hell, but I would go to heaven and I'd be with God. And that sounded pretty slick to me. So I remember turning around in the civic center, the, the big auditorium that we were in. And at that point, as a five or six year old, I remember dedicating my life to Christ. And in some ways that immediately changed my life. I remember being on the swing set in our house and, or not in our house, at our house. I know, I, I wish we would have had one inside. That would have been cool. But I remember being on that swing set and making up songs to God and about God. I don't know why I did that. I don't think I knew I was supposed to sing praise to God. I just know that I did that. And the reason I share this is because there are other parts of my journey where I might have started to question, was that experience real? But clearly there was a transformation that happened in my life. I grew up, spent most of my teen years in the 80s and the very early 90s when rock and roll still sent you to hell and it was of the devil. And you know, and that, and a lot of how I lived was based on me trying to do what the Bible said. So I had people pouring into my life who told me how to live, but I tried to live it myself. So, you know, I didn't drink or smoke or chew or go with girls that do, I, you know, 
and, and whatever that stuff is, right? Those weren't the things that I did. I had my own set of stuff that I tried to fight in my own strength. I had, you know, the, the youth experiences, you know, the youth group and church camps. I had an experience with the baptism of the Holy Spirit at a relatively young age. Um, and again, I don't want you to think that I'm disparaging this heritage. I am immensely grateful for what I thought was useless at the time when I memorized parts of the book of John for a Bible quiz. I just thought I wanted to win something. But now I look back and I go, I know the Word of God. There are parts of the Word of God that would not be in my life if I had not been in that place to memorize that stuff. And my heart for us is that we would offer that, those experiences, whether people understand it or not, that we would offer those experiences to learn the Word of God and to live it knowing that people move from one place of relationship with God through to other places of relationships with God and we can trust the Holy Spirit to lead them in that. My heart is that we would catch on to that. I did go to a Christian college in Missouri, uh, which was not where I grew up, and I did that um, in part because I knew that Christians couldn't go to state schools because that would send you into sin. And, um, and I also did it because they had a really good music program, and I liked music, and I thought I was going to somehow do that professionally as a teacher or as a player. And I also did it because, on some level, I felt like God was leading me that way. Um, while I was there, I continued to largely live in my own strength. Um, you know, there were pockets of place where I can look and see, okay, God had his finger on my life right there, and look, God did this. And I can certainly look back over the whole thing and see how God orchestrated it and how God led me to a place. But at that time, I was largely living in my strength. I knew what to do and I couldn't do it, so I tried harder. When you continue to do that, it leads to a place of failure. And it leads to what I consider the single biggest point of failure in my life. While I was in college, I met a girl and I got married. And it wasn't Catherine, because we've only been married six years. All right, so you, you can already see where this one's headed, right? It was ill-advised and it was difficult and rocky from the start. Although, thankfully, that's where I met Pastor Ronnie because she was in the youth group of this church back before we met in college. So there was a bit of a connection there. Um, but when I say it was ill-advised, I want to make it clear how ill-advised it was. See, <clears throat> I also want to be careful what I share because my story, like Dave's, is intertwined with other people. And I recognize that I'm the one standing up here. And scripture says that when there's a dispute or a disagreement, that one person's story sounds right until the other person shares theirs. And then you go, wait a minute. And since I'm the only one here, it's not fair for me to share it and go, this is what it is. Uh, so recognize that you're hearing my perspective. But before, while we were dating, I remember going for a walk and praying and asking God if I should do this. And I remember ever so clearly hearing a voice in my head say no. And I thought, well, that can't be God. It can't be that easy. I must have to pray more. <laughs> right? I, you know, I'm 19 and stupid. So, <laughs> so I had that. And then I also, but then also, things were already set into motion. And there was also a, a, a certain sense of intertwinedness there. And I decided that it was easier to assume that that wasn't God and to continue on than to go, whoa, maybe God can speak to me. Perhaps I should listen to him. So I did that. And from that point, our lives got more and more difficult because now we had what was honestly a fairly caustic relationship much closer. And um, things don't go well when you do that. I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. We were in a Christian school, but we weren't involved in the local church. In fact, we looked for nearly every opportunity with our status as married students to 
not go to chapel. <clears throat> I don't know why. It was pretty stupid, but that's what we did. And I don't know that we were overt about it, but that was our practice. Um, our devotional times were almost non-existent. Our communication was not great. And then there were also some family things. Not us, but, you know, family affects you. And there were some family things that did impact our lives that made things more difficult. And after college, we thought, well, you know, we're pretty much broke and... I went to school to be a teacher in a city that has a major university and three small universities that all turn out teachers. So you can suspect that maybe the market for a high school band director who had no experience might not have been that stellar. Um, in fact, it was virtually non-existent because everybody who had gone to school to be a music teacher wanted to move back once they got enough experience to, to be there. And there, you know, it was very competitive, much like, I guess, much like football is here, the band programs were very competitive where if you had several good years and then you had a, band, a bad year in competition, the music teacher might find himself looking for a, an opportunity in a much smaller school. And there was nothing about that that I liked, not because I didn't like marching band and not because I didn't like music, but because I hated the pressure that put on kids. And so we moved here to Murfreesboro where her family lived. And interesting thing about Missouri and Tennessee, licensing requirements aren't exactly the same. So I came in mid-summer and basically couldn't get a job as a teacher. So from there I went to, and then I realized I could make as much money as a manager at, fa at a fast food restaurant as I could my first year in teaching at the time. And I thought, kind of a no-brainer. I don't know why I went to school. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a little bit harder to get fired, you know, because you're not leading a band that's in competitions that might lose to a much better band from a bigger school with more money. You're just working at McDonald's. Yeah. And, and I did that for, for a while, but then you know, we were living in a the difficult situation. And about three and a half years into our marriage, keep in mind that you're hearing my side of the story. Just That's sort of the disclaimer. You're hearing my side. About three and a half years into the, the marriage, she came to me and shared with me some things that sounded to me like, I don't love you and I think I'd like you to move out. Those were not the words she said. That's what I interpreted. And I was, I was pretty well devastated. This would have been late 2007, early 2008. The time frames kind of get muddy in my head, you know, because it's been a couple of years. And, you know, I struggled with that for a while. Um, I don't remember how long, a few months, because one, I didn't really want a failed marriage because um, that meant that I was a failure. See, I, I knew that divorce was a sin, and so I didn't want to be a sinner. But I also knew that she didn't really want to keep me around, and we really weren't succeeding at putting anything into the marriage. And I actually prayed about it, which, you know, I was, you know, and I also threw myself into some Christian activity that I could find. And started occasionally going to church when my work schedule would allow it and started praying on occasion uh, usually when I was distraught and that's how it works right everything's okay you get knocked off balance you go God could you set my life right and sometimes God says yeah but it's not what you think it is and so I prayed about it and I said okay what should I do because I knew enough from scripture from studies and whatever to, to know that there was this example of Hosea whose wife was a was a prostitute and whose wife left him high and dry to go out, took all that, not all that he had, but pretty much took the stuff that he gave her and used that to get other lovers. And he left her. But then Hosea bought her back. I was like, God, what do I do with that? And then I pondered the writings of Paul, where he says, if you live with a non-believing spouse and they want to leave, you should let them. And I struggled for a while and I didn't know what to do. And I believe that I made the right decision in following that because as I thought about it, I thought, well, there's really nothing about her life that indicates that she's a believer. I could be wrong. I can't judge her heart, but there's nothing about that. Keep in mind, of course, that I was no spring chicken myself. I was no real catch. 
but this was my thought process. And I also recognized that God had not told me to marry her like God told Hosea. Now, I'm not telling you this to give you an out. This is just my thought process. So if you're hearing it that way, please, you're hearing it wrong. This is just what I dealt with. And so in the end, I said, well, she's asking me to leave. I guess I have to. And so I did, and I moved out. <clears throat> moved into every guy's dream, a one-bedroom, 440-square-foot apartment, a couple of miles off of MTSU, too old to fit in, no friends. And about that time, I made the second poorest decision in my life. Um, became involved in an inappropriate relationship. And right now you're probably thinking, well, Brian, you genius, didn't you know better? <laughs> and I, I remember a conversation with my mom, and I don't remember if she said this or I said this, but the conversation was around, if you've been in a desert long enough and you're thirsty enough, any old mud hole or cesspool looks like life. And at the time, I was in a very vulnerable place. Now, I don't want to say this about this other person that she was a cesspool or anything like that, all right? That's, I'm talking about the toxic relationship and the fact that it was sin, all right? And so I headed into that, and it was an almost immediate downward spiral from there, which, as you might have guessed, since I thought I was at rock bottom, was a little bit surprising. <laughs> uh, apparently, you can start digging. I didn't. <laughs> and so this on one level or another went on for some months. I don't know, maybe three or four. I don't remember the exact timing. And then there was some stuff that happened that let me know the writing was on the wall. And, and frankly, I was more devastated than I had been before because now I'm a failure twice. Not only did I get married poorly, get divorced, I then entered into an inappropriate relationship and that failed. So I'm, I'm like the, the biggest failure on the earth, in my mind. Turns out we're all, we all need Christ the same amount, completely. But at the time, it felt like I was just becoming worse and worse and worse. And there were people praying for me. My parents, probably my grandmother, certainly my grandmother, um, probably aunts and uncles, family members, friends, pastors, I don't know who all. And I remember sitting in the apartment one day watching uh, probably the the best movie of all time, The Preacher's Wife, which is, has essentially nothing to do about with God, but God used that to begin speaking into my life and go, no, you, you need to recognize I'm real. I'm here. I'm calling you. And so, so I had that experience. And I just remember one day sitting in my apartment looking at the shambles of what I called a life and looking back over my experiences as a teenager and trying to do it myself and going, God, because I, I guess I never questioned that there was a God. I always considered myself a Christian, even though I was a total screw-up. And I look back and I go, God, I don't think that's all that you have for me. But it's so much better than this. If that's all it is, I'll take that over this any day. And within days, I was looking for a church, even just to go once. And I'd been married here, so this was probably the last church I wanted to go to. And this was back in the old building a long, long time ago. And 2008, in case you're wondering. And um, it... It happened to be the church that worked for my skin. Huh? Yeah, 98, whatever. <laughs> so you shave your head and all of a sudden, you, you know. <laughs> so I was looking for a place to go. And this was the place that had, that was an Assembly of God church because I knew it had to be one of those. And they had an early service, which worked with the schedule that I had. So I hopped on the motorcycle that I had as transportation, pretty much the only thing I had left after I pretty much ruined everything and came here and was overwhelmed because it didn't matter what pastor preached on. I couldn't tell you now what pastor preached on. I couldn't tell you any of the music that we did. Uh, I couldn't tell you anything about it except that I knew I was here because I needed to be here. And there was a really good chance at the end if there was an altar call, I was going to be down there because 
where I was really stunk and I'd take what I used to have over this any day. And so at the end of the service, I did that. <clears throat> there was an altar call. I don't know if you'd planned to have one or not, but there was one, so I'll take it. And I headed down and Pastor Ronnie prayed with me and we talked about a few things. We, we prayed for some stuff and you know there was some confession that went on and we prayed that I would take care of those things and then Pastor Ronnie asked if there was anything else and so I shared with him a couple of other things. And his prayer for me was that God would give me the strength to take care of what I needed to take care of and that he would take care of the things that I either couldn't or wouldn't. And God was faithful to do that. I would like to say that in that moment everything changed. In a, in a way it did, right? Because God had, at that point, captured my heart. If for no other reason than I would take this over my skill. But God had also welcomed me back. See, I recognized that I was a prodigal. I knew that story. I knew taking what my father had given me and going out and wasting out on everything and coming back and him going, hey, I'll take it. my boy, like running out after me. That's what God did. God chased me down because I was running. And so God had my heart. He started bringing me from a place of anger and bitterness and brokenness. And he replaced that with joy and insight. Not in a moment. <laughs> Over the years, we're still working on some of this, but in that moment, the change started. One of the things I'd like to share with you that changed because it had been an issue for me before was tithing. See, I, I was always a little bit upset about tithing because I really thought I could have a lot more fun with 100% than with 90%. But for whatever reason, in that moment, or within the first couple of days, God said, no, that's mine. Everything is mine. So then it became basically a non-issue for me to go, well, it's your money. I guess I'll give it to you because it's yours. I didn't have to worry. I didn't have to think about what was going to be my contribution because it was his. I was just moving it from one bucket to the other. And so I did. Now, I also went to some places that emphasized giving inappropriately. Ministries that had, uh, in particular, I went and saw a couple of people who pr were supposed to be prophets. I'll, you know, since Jesus came back in 2002, I'm pretty sure they were right. Um, and at the time, they were saying things like, you know, if you sow into our ministry, God's word says that you will receive back this much and this much and this much. And, you know, for a while, I kind of wanted to follow that. But it just never sat right. And the problem for me, this is where it came down for, for me, was perspective. See, we have this idea that we give money and we receive money, right? Because it says that you receive the kind of seed that you sow. But I would submit to you that what we actually do is we sow either to the kingdom or we sow to the kingdom of darkness. We either sow to blessing or we sow to cursing. And so if we sow to blessing, we receive blessing. And I can look over my life. Pastor Ronnie shared this a few weeks ago. I have this problem with karma, right? It's an experiential problem. Because as I look back over my life, I have planted more weeds than I've planted good seed. But I have reaped more fruit than I have reaped weeds. Because of God's grace, the fields that I have sown into, by God's mercy, have yielded more fruit in my life than they have yielded weeds, even though I sowed more weeds than I sowed good seed. So that became kind of a non-issue for me because I looked at it and I went, well, what, what if I tithe and I give and the only thing I get out of it is that my children know Jesus? You know, not like manipulating God, but what if that's the only thing? Is that enough? I'm like, well, of course it is. What could be, what could be more than that? What if I get, what if the only thing I get out of this is that God receives me? But see, he already did that. It started there. It also bled over to relationships. See, I was starting to develop relationships with people in the church, some of whom poured into my life, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but some of whom started running from God. And I don't, you know, I don't know why at first, but I started kind of chasing after him, right? Going, seriously, do you, do you know what you're doing? Do you know why you're doing this? And keep in mind that this isn't sequential, so some of this was over the course of a couple of years. Um, and I went, well, if I walk away from God, I want God to send somebody after me. So if he sends me after somebody, I'm going. And if, I, if my children or my grandchildren or great-grandchildren, if at, at the time, assuming I had a family, because at the time I didn't, I want God to send somebody after them. So I will sow to this f field 
and trust God with them. I started getting connected with people in my life who dealt with a lot of the garbage I brought with me, the bitterness, the brokenness. And I actually want to call some names. I'm not going to get everybody, but some of these are people that I still have relationship with, and some of these are people that our relationship is strained. But there were some specific people who poured into my life. Richard and Beth Jacobson, you can't believe the garbage they dealt with in me. You just don't know, because I was broken and I was bitter, and they were willing to listen. Kirk Lockett was involved with the young adults at the time, and he took some of this stuff. Pastor Ronnie, Pastor Brain, Pastor, Pastor Brain, that, that's appropriate. Pastor Wayne. <laughs> yeah? Jim, Jim Jones poured into my life. People like Danny Gilbert and Rodney Boyd and even people who worked for me at the time, which would have been people like Isaac and Kevin. So I, don't, I don't know if you knew that they used to come over here and worship, but they invited me and I came. I didn't know whether or not we were supposed to be here, but I was like, hey, they're going to worship and pray it. In fact, I remember there was one night I was going to do laundry and I'd forgotten and the Holy Spirit reminded me to go. And so I used those times. Those people poured into my lives whether they knew they did or not. And I'm telling you this because some of you are pouring into the lives of people who are dealing with brokenness and bitterness and you don't know what the fruit is that it will yield. I also had some times in passionate prayer and in worship, uh, some really deep times in the Word over those first couple of years. That's where my love for Leviticus came from because I know, I know, I was... <laughs> Because, so for some people, Leviticus isn't the most exciting book to read because it's all about measurements and doing orderly worship. But it was in the middle of that book that God started impacting me. So I love it because of the experiences I had with God. It's also the time when I started developing my love for the book of Jane, or as I like to call it, Cliff's Notes for the Gospel. It's five chapters and it lays so much out there for you. You know, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the the testing of your faith produces patient endurance. And don't cut it short, right? We want to, I want to cut it short. Maybe you guys don't, I do. As I walked like this, I, I looked back over my life and I certainly had this time when I believed because I knew that's what I was told to do, right? And I had this experience with God, this transformational experience, but I also wanted to be able to give an account for why I believe to people who are maybe more interested in logic. And this is where God began to capture my mind. See, even looking back over your own life, it's easy sometimes to discount the work of God and say, my hands did this, or this was chance, or this was happenstance, or I only see it this way because I was raised to see it this way. But as I look at scripture, all of the gospel hangs on one thing, the cross. If Jesus Christ is God, the Son of God, incarnate, born of a woman, who lived sinlessly on the earth, who was crucified, died and was buried, descended into hell and was resurrected again on the third day and then ascended to the right hand of the Father. If that's true, then I can believe the whole book. And in that point, I, f I feel like I've got a strong foundation because I can give a reason, an account for why I believe to someone who looks at reason and logic. So I started looking at history. I didn't necessarily examine ancient documents or anything like that, but I looked at apologetics. So I started looking at things like mere Christianity and some other pieces that looked at logic. And I said, wait a minute, there's so much of history that points to this event as real, right? There's so much history from that age that says this crucifixion happened. It says a man named Jesus was crucified on such and such day. And while that doesn't establish Christ's deity, there's also the witness of countless people who knew Christ, who saw him, and who were willing to die to say, I knew him, he died, he's alive, and he's my God. 
See, there's so little that I would be willing to die for. And to know that somebody believed so completely in that then gives me faith to go, I can trust this. Now I say this recognizing that if we were to present this to some people that they will not believe the evidence, right? It happens. We, we actually choose what we believe. A lot of people don't like to agree with that. We choose to believe things. There's, there, there's this study that, there's, there's this field of study called epistemology. It's the, the study of how we know things. And basically, it uses regressive logic to basically understand that we can't know anything. The problem with it is if you know that you can't know anything, then you can't know it, right? How can you know you don't know, right? And so looking at that, I go, okay, well, there are people who will choose not to believe this, but I'm not responsible for that. My job is to know why I believe and to be able to give an account for that. Now I lost my place. I also know that there are some people who will look at the ex expert witness and say, well, I can't believe what they said because they have an agenda, right? I mean, it happens all the time in court. You've got a person who gives an account for something, an expert witness that says, this must be what happened because we can look at this evidence and this is what it says and I'm an expert in this subject. And then the other litigant's purpose is to discount them, to say they must be wrong, right? So there are people that will do this, but it's important to understand that. Now, I do want to be clear. My purpose and my calling in life isn't to examine old documents, but I do have to choose to believe that the people who are willing to die for what they believed told the truth. And so that brought me to the third place of my belief. My other exhortation for us, in addition to looking back over our lives and encouraging ourselves with the places that God has moved in our lives, is to be able to give an account for why we believe, why you believe. You don't have to believe for the same three reasons I believe, but we need to be able to give an account for that. And I'm, I'm going to actually pull this from scripture because I don't want you to think I'm making this up. From 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have, but do the this with gentleness and respect. I want to step back from that for just a second. It wasn't my point, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ might be ashamed of their slander. The first part of my life, my relationship with God was defined almost entirely by my parents and culture. Not saying that God wasn't moving in my life, but that was the way that he formed me. I have experiences with God. I believe that we all do. And I also believe because I believe in the cross. I believe that it can be demonstrated that it happened. And if the cross is true, I have to believe the rest of the book. Because the idea, the scandalous idea that God Almighty would come down and become one of us and die on our behalf is so ludicrous that if it's true, then how can I discount the rest of the book? I mean, I mean think about our story. What about that is not scandalous? And yet that's God's great love for us. I'll leave you with one other thing and then I'm going to take just a couple of minutes to, to read a little bit of the, the story that I wrote to myself or the, the letter I read to myself. Everyone must decide to believe. God must give us faith to believe. Anything can be discounted by someone who doesn't want to believe. But my job is to be a minister of reconciliation, sharing the hope that I have and to make disciples. It's God's job to call them to himself and to prove himself to you. If the, the worship team wants to come back up, I'll just read a little bit and we've got a few, a few minutes. This is the letter I wrote to myself. It was actually on Alyssa's second birthday. I don't know why I did it on that date. It seems like something I should do regularly, but I haven't. So this is the older you writing to the you of the past. Don't freak out. I know that you'll never read this because you're already past, but there are some things I've learned that I'd like to pass on, though I know it's impossible. First, you're never going to have it all figured out. You're almost always going to be figuring stuff out on the fly as you go through life. So many things aren't certain, and sometimes things that once worked no longer work because the world has changed. So don't worry about that. Don't let the fact that outcomes are uncertain keep you from doing and trying stuff. 
If you do, you'll never do anything. In fact, as near as I can tell, everybody's just figuring it out as they go along. So learn all that you can from books, from experiences, whether good or bad, and from other people. I will tell you that I still believe that God is a certainty, even more and even more deeply now than I did when I was you. Your career isn't what you think it's going to be. In fact, you'll have several careers, and it's likely you'll never make a living doing what you went to college for. That doesn't mean that college was a waste. You'll use what you've learned, and the degree is important for now, but that doesn't mean you're going to make a living at it. Spend more time worrying about the kind of man you want to be instead of the things you want to do or accomplish. And while you're at it, though this seems contrary, learn how to set and achieve goals. I know, it's an oxymoron. Don't let your fear of failure hold you back, and believe me, it will if you'll let you. You're going to fail a lot. Many things won't work out the way you think they will. You can learn from your failures, but don't let them define you. When you start thinking about purpose and destiny, you'll need to keep a couple of things in mind. And if you ever figure out how to do these 100%, let me know, because I want you to know that I'm still struggling with them now that I'm nearly 40. Spend more time building your relationship with God than you do trying to figure, define, or chase your own purpose or destiny. Once you know what you're supposed to be about, get busy becoming the kind of person you need to be to fulfill that destiny. Your destiny is more about who you are than what you accomplish. Mm, come on. You have your whole life to accomplish all that has for you. And while you oughtn't dawdle, there's no reason to stress about it and wonder why God doesn't seem to be moving on your timetable. The future is in his hand. There will be so many times you mess up that you'll lose count. But there will also be many times you did get it right and didn't even realize it. If you focus on your failures, you'll lose heart. If you focus on your success, you might become proud. I recommend that you do your best to take everything, the good, the bad, and the successes and the failures, to Christ and focus on him. Learn from your failures, build on your successes, but be submitted for, to God in all things. You're going to end up being a leader. Don't rush after it, chase after it, or idolize it, and don't hold on to it too tightly. Keep a journal. Keep track of things. Learn how to visioneer a little bit. Figure out what happened to that child who knew how to dream and dance and love and smile. Bring him back to life. And while you're at it, Learn to be appropriately honest with everybody. You'll save me a great deal of work and years trying to figure out stuff about your purpose and destiny and vision. Even at nearly 40, I feel disconnected from my ability to dream. Thankfully, God's changing that, but this is what I wrote. Don't take advantage of people. Don't waste resources. Don't hoard. Be appropriately honest always. You notice that was in there twice? Lots of people are going to hurt you. It's going to hurt, but God is still God, and he's still in charge of it all. Take it all to him, even if you have a complaint or a suggestion or a question, but don't forget that he's in charge of it all. Mom and dad love you. You're going to break their hearts, but they'll still love you. They're still proud of you. I don't know why. They're proud of me too. You're going to go through a divorce because you married foolishly. Don't do it again. You're going to be single for a decade. You're not going to like it, but God will be faithful to keep you and to remind you of your future. Focus on learning and growing. Let God take care of the rest. You're going to be a spiritual leader in your home, at work, and at church. I don't know how that happened, but don't take it lightly. And don't hold on to it too, too tightly. It's God's calling and he's the one who gives you position. Never foc and never focus that. Never forget that the people you serve are God's too. You are loved. You'll go through seasons where you don't feel like it. But then God and all the people around you will surprise you. Stay planted where you are so you can grow. Let God worry about when and where you should do something next. When he says go, go. But don't waste time and don't force his hand. Thanks for listening to the Engaging Mission Show. You can find more great content like this along with show notes by visiting engagingmissions.com or by subscribing to the show in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next week.